quick, tell me what it was you were doing uh, six years ago today. Uh, six years ago today, I was sitting in the loft office of the failing gallery that I opened a few blocks from here, wondering, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, what am I doing sitting here losing money with a gallery? And then you called. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I didn't realize you guys still had the gallery back then. Man, I'm telling you, th- things have changed since then. Jeb, you were in Springfield, Virginia, right? Right, right. Yeah, and where was I? Let me think about this for a second. Uh, that was when I was living in uh, Melrose, Mass., uh, although at the time I never admitted it. But uh, uh, <laughs> I, I always just, We always knew. Yeah, I, I always just, I don't yeah, know what I said. I, I used to say all sorts of things about where I was living at the time, but I was living in Melrose, Mass. Um, and uh, my goodness, a lot. I was going to say a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then, but that's a, that's a maritime uh, metaphor. We need an aviation metaphor. A lot of air over the foil. Yeah, I guess so, huh? A lot of a lot of bounces on that landing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, should have you current for three hundred years. <laughs> six years ago, we started this podcast. Uh, be uh, obviously three hundred and. So, you know, I've lost track. What is this? 302 episodes ago, or 303 episodes ago, depending on how you count it. And uh, we this, did, is, this is 303, I think. This is 303. Right. I, uh, I did the math back at the time of, uh, of uh, uh, episode 300, and I don't have it handy. But it was the math went along, was something along the lines of that if you started listening to episode one and listened to every episode back-to-back, 24-7, it would take like two weeks to listen to them all. Uh, so... You know, that's just what I was going to do on my vacation this year. Well, there you go. You're all set. They turned down my vacation request. So (laughs) I just heard from a listener the other day who, uh, God bless his heart. All right. But what he said, he said, I've actually I've started listening to all the episodes again for the second time. All right. He's gone back to number one. And uh, I mean, even I'm not doing that, you know, and I've gone back and I'm doing research on the old ones for uh, for Echo. Um, but I'm not. Even I'm not listening to all of them. I'm just kind of, you know, reading through the show notes and listening uh, selective bits and pieces here and there. If I had the time, uh, and it was related to something productive, I, I, that would be certainly yeah. an interesting prospect. Yeah, well, you know, if nothing else, you got to go back and listen listen to the to the you know first few minutes or the, fir- the entire first episode. The right. uh, in some ways it's very much the same, but in some ways it's very different. Uh, you know, as I've said many times before, listening to number one is very sh- is almost shocking because we were so serious. I mean, we oh, I don't yeah. I, I don't know what we thought we were doing here. All right, but I think but we, that's just it. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, there. this was you know this was well, like you we, know we still don't. No, yeah, I know, but but now we kind of you know we've sort of thrown our hands up in the air and we just say okay here we are. But uh, yep. we were, we were very serious. We were we were pretending to be broadcasters and. Uh, it was it was quite something, um, and and we couldn't get past the idea of referring to our audience as readers. We did that all the time back then. We'd say, "Oh, we got heard from a reader." Oh, I mean a listener, you know. And uh, so, uh, a lot of things have happened since then. Um, and that's sort of the question I want to pose um, on the occasion of this uh, sixth birthday. Is uh, uh, and, I, and I don't necessarily want to rehash every sort of storyline or, you know, that kind of thing. But just in general, is is general aviation more different or more the same than it was six years ago? Yes. Oh, yeah, I know. See, I, I worked real hard to craft this question so that you couldn't answer, it depends. Um, but... Uh, he didn't. He said yes. I know. I know. He, he, Which he is, I agree with. Outsmarted right, yes. me. Outsmarted me. Um 
How, how, how is it the same as it was? Throw a dart at the list, and we'll, we'll start on one. Well, pick well, one. I've, I've given well, you a bunch in, of possibles in very here. simple ways. We're, we're still flying the same airplanes, mm-hmm. for example, for yeah. the most part. I mean, there hasn't been, I would call the Cirrus a, 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 a game changer mm-hmm. in, in, in many different ways. There hasn't been another similar game-changing aircraft um, aircraft airframe since then. Right. Well, um, there have been a lot of other developments. Uh, one of the things on your list is the iPad, mm-hmm. and uh, just the developments uh, associated with GPS and, and modern avionics. I think is another change mm-hmm. um, that we've seen in the last six years. Um, the flip side of which is we're not seeing enough changes. Um, those are all in the good column. The bad columns we're not seeing any changes in. Yeah. We're still seeing a, a relatively stable and high rate of accidents. Um, and we're still seeing those accidents for the same reasons. Um, and we're not making progress in those areas. Yeah. David, you were going to say? Well, we've... Jeb's right. Uh, there's a lot that uh, is too much status quo or too much like a status quo from six years ago. There's also some things that have changed, uh, some for the better. Like, you, And you know how I, I, I harp on us. We, we have to grow the pilot population because without a pilot population, there's not enough market for all the other stuff it takes to support a system this large. And uh, so when prepping for this, I looked up uh, 2006 and 2011 pilot numbers from the FAA and was kind of blown away to see that we're up about, oh, what's my notes say? We're up about 20,000 total pilots. Yeah, it's from 2006 to the end of 2011. Really? Okay. Hmm. That's, yeah. That's that interesting. Let me, let me totally by surprise. Uh, we are... Real quick and dirty, we are down private pilots, about 25,000. We're up commercial pilots, about 3,000. Uh, up uh, ATPs, about 600. And up sport-only pilots, more than 3,000. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. And that's like a well, 3,000% increase. Yeah, well, that's... That, hi- that highlights a couple of things. And, and uh, you know, those numbers are, are encouraging. They're... They're um, relatively modest, but in the scheme of things, I'll take them. Yeah, um, and, absolutely. And, and, and smile all the way home. Um, but um, there's two things, I think, coming out of that. One, I think we overlooked one, uh, I wouldn't call it a, a total game changer. For some, it probably is. But um, at least for the f- type of flying I do right now, it's not as much of a game changer. And that is the advent and... and um, proliferation of, of light sport and sport pilot mm-hmm. right uh, light sport aircraft and sport pilot certificates I, I think that uh, changed a lot of the game for a lot of people but it hasn't changed my game per se it may down the road um, um, but that's a whole nother topic um, so yeah I think that's that's been a significant development a significant uh, change while we had light sport and in, in, in sport pilot certificates Six years ago, they had been out a year or two. We didn't know that, and we didn't know how the industry would mature, and we didn't know what the safety implications right. would be. But, but all, a lot of those questions we have at least um, um, 
palatable answers to right now. Right. One of the things that one of the things that I found notable listening to bits and pieces of old episodes back from that first year is, uh, th- and a lot of this has to do with the fact that since six years ago, we've suffered, you know, one of the worst recessions in, in U.S. or world history. Um, and that certainly played a big part in this. But listening to the episodes six years ago, we were a bit more optimistic. Things were going well. Things were, you know, uh, we were looking forward to LSA. We were looking forward to VLJs. We were, you know. Yeah, the trap door hadn't tripped uh, yeah, yeah. quite at the point. Well, a year after we started this, uh, the, the whole axis started to shift pretty significantly. Yeah. And by the time yeah. we hit 100 episodes, we were completely off axis from where we'd been before. And by axis, you're referring to the economy? Yeah, well, as an industry, yeah. Okay. We got tilted off of what had been a pretty stable routine of ups and downs, with ups uh, the last couple of uh, cycles actually doing a little better than the downs hurt us, but not this last one. I mean, what, we're five years into it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Jeb, I think it was you just mentioned uh, Sport Pilot and LSA. Um, I, I would submit, or at least for the purpose of discussion, let me say this. LSA mm-hmm. has been a pretty good success. Sport Pilot, not so much. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I, 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 Dave, you cited a number there of I think a two or three thousand increase, uh, person increase in sport pilot certificates um, in the last what period of time? Uh, Dave, was that like? Well, you said yeah, it was that's, ten that's to right. twelve. I'm um, ten to eleven. Three thousand. Eleven. But but yeah, wait a, yeah, a little over so three thousand more. If, that's a year. That's over a period of one year, and I think that's pretty damn good. Wait a minute. Maybe I misunderstood oh, that, the number. That was over a period from 2006 to the end of 2011. Yeah, so it's almost six oh, years. Okay. Five, five years. years. Five years. Five and, years. But that's five still years. a remarkable percentage increase, I think. Well, it would go from under 1,000 to over four. Yeah, but Sport yeah. Pilot was brand new. The percentage increase was going to be good regardless. Sure. Um, I mean, let me ask you this. If, if you know, go back in time, if you had asked a sport, one of the Sport Pilot proponents back in 2006, um, you know, look ahead six years, and and there are going to be 3,000 more Sport Pilots in, in 2012. Are you happy with that? I think they would have been quite disappointed. Well, if it was the same same kind of gain over the next period of time, you mean? Yeah, I think that I think that proponents of Sport Pilot in two thousand six, w- oh, I had see what much you mean. Higher hopes for Sport Pilot than just three thousand new pilots, net new pilots in six years. I, I think I think Sport Pilot I think Sport Pilot still has awesome. Um, um, potential, by the way. I mean, I, I don't mean to, to characterize it that way. I just think that it's really started more slowly. Um, I think LSA in general, that whole, uh, you know, LSA has been dominated by, um, you know, we've talked about this before. I believe that it's been dominated by the aging private pilot um, buying airplanes and, and, and not so much, um, you know, as a, as a, 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 a different kind of entry point to aviation. Well, I, I agree with you on the level of the number of people that it's kept flying. I'm not sure that we're seeing that. Uh, I don't know to what percentage we're seeing that in the sport pilot only numbers that uh, that uh, the FAA has has produced. Uh, yeah. How many of those are older guys? How many of them are younger guys who are just looking at the lower cost of getting into it? Jeb, you were trying to jump in there. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is, um, I think uh, in talking to people, the, the listeners. 
um, other people that we come in contact to, with at, at trade shows. We talk with pilots um, among our normal um, uh, coterie of, of uh, flying friends. And all of them have, are, are, you know, interested in sport pilot. Those who uh, don't have certificates or those who are, are just starting in their aviation career um, are more than happy to go get a sport pilot ticket and go after a sport pilot ticket, especially these days when times are tough and, and the sport pilot ticket can open up a lot more doors much more inexpensively than a private ticket can. Um, so everybody's got a good vibe on it. There's, there's, we've talked to a lot of sport pilots over the years, uh, people who only have a sport – or I won't say only – people who have earned um, – uh, the sport pilot certificate has the first rung on a ladder. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, maybe that's as high as they go. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. But uh, I've seen a lot of interest and a lot of enthusiasm for it. Yeah. Is okay. it a net plus? Absolutely, it's a net plus. Absolutely. Is it, is it, is it um, the, the great savior of general aviation as we know it? No, because uh-huh. everything changes. Mm-hmm. And general aviation as we know it has to march on also. Yeah. Okay. And it takes really the sum of all this stuff to make it all balance out. Okay. I mean, we've got to have healthy manufacturers for there to be a healthy market for building uh, commercial aircraft for individuals to use small businesses, small freight carriers uh, for the small business people. It can't all be just about what the most expensive airplanes can do because then it makes even them a little bit too pricey. Uh, because what you're going to maintain all these airports and maintenance operations based on that small number of airplanes alone doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Joe. Back back, back, um, back in the '70s and '80s, uh, at the Air and Space Museum in D.C. Um, on the Mall, they used to have a an IMAX production called To Fly. Uh, it was one of the, uh, one of the first IMAX theaters you know in the country, and and da 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 da. But um, uh, I've seen that, you know, it's just a, um, a short film, maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, and, but the key of it is, it's, the name of it is To Fly, and it talks about just uh, man's dream, lifelong dream, to um, epic long dream to fly, and how it's manifested itself in, in all many different kinds of, of contrivances for many different kinds of purposes. To me, that's that's the key right there. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Doesn't matter if you're a sport pilot or an ATB driving a triple seven across the pond. Um, everybody's flying, and and that's what the key is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another thing we were very excited about talking about a lot in the early f- a few episodes was uh, VLJs, very light jets. Uh, what happened to yeah. VLJs? Oh, they we were exciting the while they lasted. Yeah, Jeb, you got stepped yeah. on. Go ahead. I just I just say they went bust with the economy more than anything. That type of, <laughs> of aircraft targets um, targets uh, uh, you know high net worth individuals uh, as opposed to the other aircraft targeting uh, businesses. Mm-hmm. And there just weren't enough high net worth individuals, and those who were still willing to put some money into into personal flying of that caliber uh, were better off with a, with a um, fractional operation. In, in these uncertain times, quote unquote. Yeah. So I mean that's that's what you know really kind of did in VLJs. I think that plus um, um, now some of you know the Mustang, and I'm not sure about the Embraer 100. Um, are I believe single pilot, but the Eclipse, 
um, was was a, at least until the recent software iterations. I don't think was really single pilot, was it? Dave, do you know? Yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the Eclipse just was single pilot. You did get a single pilot status. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and it's uh, known iSync finally. <laughs> Yeah, not finally. There, you know, there was a time they couldn't go over twelve five or something with this thing. I don't right. know what it was. Yeah. Oh yeah, it had all yeah. sorts. Of, it was a time when you couldn't of... fly at IFR. I think wasn't there yeah, some weird that, rule I think like it came that? Out that way. I, I, somehow I remember um, um, I, and VFR only, and by definition only up to eighteen. Um, so you had a problem there too. But um, that plus, I think insurance uh, was not as easy to get as a lot of people thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, go ahead, Dave. The, the 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 design that everybody got hyperventilated over was the Eclipse Five Hundred, uh, Vern Rayburn's baby. They never marketed that as an owner flown individual's airplane. That was always going to be the backbone of a new. A new kind of heretofore impossible point-to-point uh, scheduled and charter service that was going to cost as little to fly as a Beach Baron, except you'd be able to have one pilot take three or four paying passengers and special rates. And uh, Dayjet actually got started with it, uh, but the airplanes were limited in what they could do because they weren't fully certified yet. There, there were a whole bunch of stuff went wrong with that, but. The one thing that kept the airplane from ever having a chance at its real potential was the uh, breakdown in an engine selection. The first engine didn't work out, and the economics of that first engine dictated everything else about the airplane. Well, when you could no longer get those economics for the engine, you couldn't get those economics for the airplane. The price increased substantially. Uh, the operating costs went up significantly. Then there were the certification problems. And finally, the company just ran out of steam, went bankrupt. And they'd built about 250 of them at that point, I think, to three or four different levels of certification. Right, right. But there's still designs out there kind of floating around the edges that uh, their backers still hope to get into uh, into service. The, yeah. the, the Cirrus jet and the Diamond D jet being the two that might have the closest chance to yeah. actually doing it. Yeah, so we'll see. One area I think we can say we've made a lot of progress in the last six years in the area of next-gen. No, I think no. you're right. No, no. I was, I'm not sure if that's true. You know, when we started this podcast, I barely knew what next-gen was, and now I just kind of yawn every time I hear about it. Uh, it is So next-gen is sort of the, the next-generation, state-of-the-art, replacement for the air traffic control system I, replacement's not the right word but but evolution um and uh it, it it seems like it's just kind of always been coming in the future for six years and it probably will for a long time to come yeah i mean there's mm-hmm. some sub some subjects on our regular list that we'll get to eventually um that kind of play into how that's all you know developing but uh um you know, would would the the aviation world of six years ago have been terribly disappointed or surprised to see how far it's gotten by 2012? Hmm, that's a good question. I think you think people uh, had higher hopes, higher expectations, or is this pretty much what anybody would have expected? I I'm, I think my expectation. I was excited for the about the technology, and I still think it's got a lot of merit. 
in terms of uh, its accuracy and its flexibility. Uh, but I'm I'm actually a little surprised at the progress that they've made in getting the infrastructure in and up and functioning, and the beginning of uh, the uh, actual availability of the radio signals to the ground system that make uh, uh, ADSB airplane ADSB out and in equipped airplanes capable of using all the goodies that the system offers. Uh, that's actually come along pretty close to the the most recent schedules from about four years ago. Uh, we went over uh, what are they? LPV approaches, lateral precision with vertical guidance. It's an all GPS approach, only possible with WAS GPS and the right certified receivers in 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 an approved installation. Yada yada. But in the last six years, the FAA has commissioned more of those GPS approaches uh, than there are ILS approaches. And as we found out recently uh, in a story from a uh, uh, turbine driver, that uh, there's questions about how many of those LPV approaches have actually been surveyed properly in in, in acceptable <laughs> time frames. Yeah, well, that's yeah, we might get to that later on. But, uh, Jeb, anything you want to add about next gen? <clears throat> yeah, okay. No, uh, I guess. Yeah, okay. I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say about next year. Yeah. Um the pilot's bill of rights came out of nowhere. That's kind of an interesting development. I mean, it kind of in some ways came out of nowhere and somewhere it's been simmering on the, you know, back burners or whatnot for a long time. Um is, well, it's been is, a conversation piece. Is it progress? <laughs> well, you know, there there's been a couple of articles. I think there's a link to them somewhere. Um, one's on Avweb, one's on GA News. Uh, talking about how uh, uh, while we're while we're entertaining the the uh, or feeding the um, pilot's bill of rights, don't forget the unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, on the face of it, right now seems to be a lot more paperwork for pilots um, to get a medical certificate. Now, you have to sign some sort of of, of rights recognition statement. Uh, with the FAA as part of the paperwork, or, or you know, I don't know if it's a separate sheet of paper or something built into the medical application. Uh, it probably would be the same for a pilot certificate. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the keys behind that is some way the statute and regulations are written, where um, uh, the administrator shall, upon investigation. Um, do X, Y, and Z: issue an, issue a medical certificate, issue a pilot certificate. Issue a mechanic certificate. Um, the key is uh, is the word investigation, and they are telling you they have the right to do this investigation, uh, but the, as a, at the same time they're advising you of their rights. It's another paperwork layer. I, FAA would be really stupid to be um, um, what's the word vindictive <laughs> or or. Um, um, <laughs> Um, make 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 it uh, um, less than what it could be, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd be really dumb to do that, but yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know. It, 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 the more things change, the more they stay the same kind of thing. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, alternative fuels. We talked about alternative fuels all the way in the very beginning of this podcast, uh, or it, maybe not so much in those terms, but you know the fact that we we're 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 needing a replacement for a hundred low lead. Have we made good progress in that area in six years? 
<laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Uh, we, we've made some political progress. We have made no technical nor commercial progress. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting way of characterizing okay. it. You, you, you don't think that... Uh, okay, well, maybe I can't come up with an example. I was going to say Swift Fuel, but then I'm thinking, you know what? Swift Fuel really has kind of disappeared from the radar. Well, where, where is it? I mean, we, all these fuels have been around. Mm -hmm. um, there's a Gammy Fuel. There's the Swift Fuel. Periodically, something else pops up, you know, made out of... Uh, uh, you know, the secretions of uh, the African tsetse fly or something that just happens to have the right blend of volatility, uh, anti-knock capabilities. And um, I know. Uh, David you know, put on what, what do you do at the airport? I'm a tsetse fly milker. No, 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 no. My alternative fuels. <laughs> David, David put on the list of story about a guy who's going to fly around the world on, on, uh, on melted-down Coke bottles, apparently. Melted-down Coke bottles? Yes. Melted down plastic uh, from bottle containers type thing. There's a lot yeah. of carbon in that, yeah. Apparently, yeah. apparently it can be done. I don't know. It's probably end up costing you know twenty seven dollars a gallon for fuel. Well, and but, and that, uh, that's one of the reasons why none of these fuels have been uh, uh, swept away by the masses anxious to make it work. Uh, getting a, a fuel that everyone will accept or that can be sold and intermixed is a, a, a notch more complicated than just coming up with a single replacement. So that's what we've got. We've got multiple replacements available, uh, almost all of which meet the technical specifications of ASTM for the heat content and knock, anti-knock qualities and, and, and flow characteristics uh, required for aviation fuels. But it's getting them to market getting them approved, and at a price that doesn't make the whole thing worse. I think you're overlooking something. I think a lot of it also is adequate production facilities or, or the lack thereof. Uh -huh. um, some, some of these alternatives can be manufactured in the same refineries in which 100 low lead is being manufactured now. It's just a different blend of chemicals and uh, maybe some, some chemicals that you know have to come in Similar to, you know, there being only one plant in the world, I think it's in England, that manufactures tetraethyl lead uh, that is in, still in, one, you know, 100 low lead. Um, you know, the, right now there are no factories that would manufacture X, Y, or Z alternative fuel. But um, some of the alternatives could, in fact, be manufactured in the, in the traditional method using the traditional uh, and or existing uh, distribution methods. Uh, some other alternatives would have to be, you know, scaled up from scratch, and that takes money. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's going to be a big stumbling block for those technologies. Yeah. Um, well, it needs to be compatible with airplane systems, and those have some variety, enough variety, that it's more than just a single solution target. Uh, the ability to mix with other compatible fuels or fuels that meet the same specifications be a big help because otherwise you might have, you know, brand Josie's replacement aviation fuel and find out that the airport that you stop at along the way has got another brand, but you can't mix the two. Uh, so, you you know, you call FedEx and have them ship in a couple of barrels. That's cheap. Yeah, and that won't cost you a bit. Right, cost yeah. You so... Um, so are there any other, uh, any other news stories, any other storylines that have evolved over six years in either good or bad fashion that I sh we should talk about? Oh, I could think of a host of 
stupid stuff that happened on the political front that adversely affected FAA and general aviation. But since they actually passed uh, law and, it, and the president signed it in authorizing the FAA's expenditures for the next three and a half years, uh, that was Valentine's Day. We got that present. I know that one very uh, nearly, very nearly lasted the entire six years. Uh, it was yeah, yeah. And, and the uh, law that they passed has a shorter shelf life than the period that they ran on continuing re- on twenty three continuing resolutions before right. between passing bills. So right. uh, I won't beat them up about that if they'll get their ass in gear and have it done like a year early next time. Yeah, that could happen. Uh, Jeb, any other items you want to add to our little? Yeah, you know we always talk about who's going to be the administrator, who the administrator is, and that yeah, kind of thing. Here we true. you know find ourselves once again in kind of a limbo. How many administrators uh, have we had in six years? Four or five? Four? Uh, Real ones, not acting Probably. Ones. St- well, there was Blakey, and then uh, after Blakey, there was, um, um, you know, how we, uh, uh, we, we, we can't remember, you know, only eight yeah, months know, ago. Huh? <laughs> uh, Randy, uh, Brett Babbitt. Yep. Uh, those are the only two full-time administrators we've had. We've had... Of course, Huerta is the current acting administrator, and I think we had one or two, maybe, I think we had two between Blakely, Blakey and uh, Babbitt. I think you're right. But I can't name them. Yeah, I'm, you, you, you would, it's too bad there isn't like a thing you could go online and look this kind of thing up. And, uh, there he goes. <laughs> well, you, there, I'm there actually doing Twitter, that right now. I'm actually doing that right now. Good, because there was a Twitter exchange we had uh, with a listener. Um, it's been within the last couple of weeks. Uh, about uh, Senator Dement of South Carolina, I believe it is, who is blocking Huerta's nomination on the Senate floor, uh, saying we shouldn't be putting in a new um, administrator at the FAA so close to an election when the administrator's term is five years. Why are we? Why are we? You know, we, we the Republicans could win this election, so we're going to screw up everything for everybody until we get our way um, come January. And we can put in our own people. Yeah. Um, did I say that out loud? Yeah, right. Um, and you'd be wrong if you weren't right. So this list from uh, Wikipedia actually lists the actings as well, um, and it shows. Uh, let's see now. In two thousand, in, in August of two thousand six, Marion Blakey was the administrator. Um, then it lists Robert Sturgill, who uh, was an Sturgill. Sturgill was an acting or or an, or an actual. He was an acting, right? He was acting. Which, I'm sorry, you broke up there, Jeb. He, he was acting. He was acting. Yeah. Um, um, it lists Lynn Osmus as an administrator. Uh, then it lists Randy Babbitt, and now it lists Michael Huerta. Um, so uh, I'm trying to, there's one thing I was, I've been curious about here for some time. Let's see now. Interesting, it doesn't show Barry. Yeah, that's what I was just looking for. It doesn't I don't sh- think it shows actings. But it shows Huerta. It shows. Yeah, where, are you, where are you looking? Because I'm, I'm on right, the right. I'm on the, uh, F, the Federal Aviation Administration page in Wikipedia, and then you scroll down to uh, well, Section Five. Go, why don't we just go to the FAI? Okay. And I remember Langard Bond and J. Lynn Helms. Donald Ingen was a, a friend. While you guys are looking up the names of the administrators, um, I want to uh, say that. Uh, there, there's one area in which there's been 
um, some very, very, very positive change in my view in the past six years. And that is in all of the new friends that we've made through this podcast. It's it's a little bit yeah. cliche. It's a little bit, you know, kind of almost it's, hokey it's to a, say it. It's a whole lot overwhelming. But it's a but it's a very, very, you know, heartfelt thing on, I think, on all three of our uh, parts. Um, in the first year or so, the first times we started going out into the world to the air shows after we were doing this podcast, we were kind of astonished by people coming up and saying hi to us. And that was thrilling from the very beginning. Beginning yeah. over the years, and and, and startling at first. It was we startling. Over, we, got over, we got over that. It was startling at first, um, and and although people still do just come up and say hi, the the other part of that that really almost took me by surprise is the people that I've just met over and over again to the point where many of them have become friends now, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that that's been a you know you know we, we talked about what what our expectations were for this podcast six years ago and how you guys were a little dubious and I had I had a little bit more confidence about where we were going with it, but I. I never expected this. I never expected no, that no. that th- these kinds of friendships would be formed. These kind of uh, of uh, you know relationships would kind of spring up, and uh, um, that's really thrilling to me. I'm I just can't be happier that uh, I've to have made all these friends. It's broadened my world, and uh, it's it's made it much more interesting. Yeah. So, David, anything you want to add to that? Well, that's oh. as far as I can go with it. It's just wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, I don't know what so, you got. Before we leave the FAA administrators thing, I think we've discovered an error at Wikipedia. No, uh, that never uh, happens. I know, shock, shock. <laughs> um, the FAA.gov uh, website at um, about slash history slash history underscore admin uh, lists um, 16 former administrators. It does not on this particular page list acting administrators. Okay. Uh, and there is a direct. It goes Garvey, Blakey, Babbitt, and then Huerta with the with the acting notation. Uh, if you go to the Wikipedia webpage, they do indeed have Sturgill and Osmus inserted between Blakey and Babbitt, and that is not in error. I mean, that is not correct. That is in error according to the FAA website. And you know, Sturgill and Osmus never were administrators. They were acting administrators. Right. They were never sworn in. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. You know, I was joking about this a couple episodes ago. I joked about the idea that we, we were reaching the end of the first season of Uncontrolled I thought, you said, a, I thought you said a lot of time. Yeah, no. And uh, so, uh, but but in many ways, I do think of this as being the season finale for uh, season one yeah. of Uncontrolled Airspace. Um, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, and we love doing it. And uh, I, I shouldn't speak on you guys' behalf necessarily, but I think we've talked about whether or not we want to continue, and we've agreed that we absolutely do want to continue. But but after having done it for six years, I think maybe the time has come for us to think about making some changes, um, to maybe take the best of what we've done and do more of that, and take the you know I don't want to call it the worst, but the stuff that's that's you know marginal, and and maybe push that aside a little bit more. And so uh, so, so in other words, you're going to cut us back to ten minutes. Yeah, something like that, <laughs> something like that. But uh, regardless of what we do in now, the future, what, now what are you going to do is jettison one of us, and, and <laughs> we have to figure out which one is going. 
<laughs> yeah, that could be the cliffhanger, right? That's the season cliffhanger. Dun, da, right, da, da, right. Which dun, one dun, dun, will dun, survive, right? Yeah, no, I think. Tune in next season. Yeah, tune in next season. Um, you know, when, we'll when, discover that all first six years was a dream. That's what we'll yeah, discover. I was going to say, when Bobby Ewing comes out of the shower. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, uh, so anyways, this is the uh, season one season finale. Uh, and uh, I just kind of wanted to spend some time reviewing, like we just did, uh, some of the things that were, were stories about the over the past six years. It's It's been a lot of fun, and uh, I expect it to continue to be more fun. Um, but but as with all shows that have a successful season one, uh, season two might, I don't know, have some new characters or maybe spend more money on some new sets or some new storylines or who knows what. So Wow, um, we, we could get new shirts. That's right, yeah. So anyways, stay tuned. Stay tuned. And on that note, let me finally say, welcome, folks, to episode <laughs> 303 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise that's yeah right. this that's is right. this is the best seat in the house that's right. we yeah. got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, they, now. It, does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Recording this episode on Wednesday, August 22, 2012. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, my uh, my dear old friends, uh, Dave Higdon's out there. <laughs> Take that however you like, all right? Take that however you like. Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing tonight? Ah, phenomenal. Just hanging, hanging out with my two best buds and sipping down some spring water and chatting aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that beats that would be flying. Yeah, I know. Huh? Um, so, uh, well, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Jeb about the weather in a big time in a second. So I'm going to ask you, David, is it still 100 degrees out there or is, this, is the, the weather broken yet, David? Well, it, it broke so hard uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning last week that uh, when uh, suiting up to uh, to do a short motorcycle ride Saturday, I realized in about a mile that I was underdressed because mm-hmm. it was like 61 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, it was marvelous wow. all weekend. It's been really moderate since then, but I'm not counting it out just yet. It's still August. Yeah, well, I it, count. We've we've got another one, two, three, four, five, six, about eleven more days. So, yeah. well, it's yeah. Well, there's the there's that turn. I've always believed that the the turn of the season is not Labor Day. Um, it's actually mid mid August, right about the time you just described, and the, what I've noticed here as well that uh, right about the time we're recording this episode. Yeah, right. You know that one, maybe that was that that was the thing that 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 prompted the whole thing, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyways, hey, that other voice out there is uh, Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, where it's raining now, right? Yeah, it's it's the last couple of days uh, we've been get, we had just overnight soakers uh, kind of rains. Oh well, but that's not uh, related because you guys are you guys are anticipating a possible visit from Isaac, right? Yes, yes, we're looking at Isaac very closely. Isaac's uh, like going to barrel straight up the coast, and, and he's got he's basically got me boresighted. I think is, yeah, is what the phrase would be. Uh, the last model showed him coming up the west coast of florida monday morning monday sometime during the day monday yeah now you've always uh, talked about the that your plan was to run away um that was that's always been my plan here's the here's the problem with that the airplane is literally in four zip codes 
Oh, really? Well, that's not good. <laughs> wow. How'd you do that? Yeah. Well, it, um, through God uh, and the glory of FedEx, it worked out just fine. Uh, I had to ship some stuff out for overhaul, mm-hmm. and I'm waiting for it to come back. Um, I'm waiting on some parts to come in. It's likely that I could cobble enough stuff together between now and Monday morning to get the airplane flyable, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I still have one part I need to remove um, with the help of a fully licensed mechanic, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and uh, ship out before the airplane is going to be uh, flyable again. So it looks, looks to me like uh, at least the airplane is going to sit this one out. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Do you think you're going to leave it in your hangar, or are you going to try and find another hangar in the development that's maybe a little more... I don't know. Secure. Uh, I, I might call around, but the trick is, how am I going to get it? I, I'll call around the neighborhood and, 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 and maybe tow it uh, somewhere, but uh, it's not leaving the airport, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, wish you good luck on that, because it does look pretty dramatic. It's, you talk about being boresighted. It really is. It is yeah, uh, the last, the last uh, projection, as I say, had it coming up the west coast of Florida um, Monday morning, like, yeah. you know, starting you know, 8 a.m. or something. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> Making preparations. Yes. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. And uh, and at this very moment, I was looking at the radar. You've got some pretty interesting uh, uh, storm cells moving through there now, whether or not they're related to Isaac or not. Um, they're not. I mean, they're not even remotely related to Isaac. They're one of the things. They're probably related to one of the reasons that Isaac is going to come almost due west for a period, uh, which is um, just the way the pressure systems are. Um, but that pressure system that's giving us rain right now is also going to disappear um, or, or at least dissipate and move on about the time that would be you know the time when Isaac wants to go north and with it's not if it's not there Isaac will go north mm-hmm. yeah so so well we wish you good luck we'll be thinking good thoughts uh, and well, be, uh, be, care- be, be careful because it looks like a good one and uh, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you from high atop Lookout Point, and uh, it's really quite beautiful these days, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Uh, Where they don't get tropical storms. Oh, no. We got just about this time last year, we were getting a really big one. Um, that, I mean, um, by the time it's that far north, can you really call it tropical? I don't know about the tropical part, man. That Vermont is still recovering from the rain that they got that just washed away major parts. I mean, just the temperature change alone, you'd want to switch from my ties to, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, Manhattan. You're not going to give in. You're just not going to accept this. It was a big storm up here, and I don't know whether it was technically still a hurricane by the time it made landfall, but uh, it caused a lot of damage that a lot of people are still recovering from. Anyways, what's going on here? Uh, so we've almost used almost all of our allotted time. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> Just in time for uh, me to do 45 the minutes. Yeah, right. So uh, let's see if we can jump through a handful of things here I wanted to talk about. Uh, some sort of – at first I got excited. I thought this was like the probable cause thing regarding the Reno uh, race crash. Um, but apparently it wasn't. What, what Did something just get published or posted by NTSB regarding the Reno crash? Yeah, the, the NTSB opened up the uh, the docket. Uh, what is the docket in, the, in this instance is the the information, the formal information they have collected um, that uh, goes into the data and in the events behind the accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've downloaded a couple of files. There's some some official and very good photography in in here uh, showing the state of the aircraft. Um, <clears throat> Um, in, in 
put the uh, position of the uh, pilot in the cockpit uh, in previous races shows the uh, you know the uh, uh, trim tab departing the airplane things like that um, I haven't gotten all the way through it um, but uh, a couple of other files in here um, deal with other aspects of the um, no that's not the right file um, um, regulations and, and uh, policies under which the races were conducted, things like that. It's all quite interesting. I, I've downloaded some of it. I really haven't had a chance to, to pull through it. This is just in within the last 24 hours or so. Yeah. David, have you had a chance to look at any of it? Uh, just a little bit. It, uh, I, I took a quick review of the, uh, uh, the uh, list of stuff at the beginning of the docket. Uh, I wanted to go back and take a look at the video that's included as part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't waded through it heavily, and I, I'm, I'm expecting that in terms of the graphic stuff, I'm going to see a lot of uh, stuff that I didn't see in the public news portrayals that followed the accident immediately. That, right. That's stuff I'm interested in, in seeing. Right. right. Now, one, one news report I, I read this morning or yesterday recently was that they're, they're now we're expecting maybe that probable cause will come out in the next month or so. Um, yeah. When is the next race? Yeah. Well, the Reno Air Races are coming up in about three weeks. So, are we going to take odds? Are they going to come before or after the races? Well, yeah, that's interesting, you know, whether they would sync it up with that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, usually, they already had hearings on this, uh, and the opening up of the public docket uh, it is a sign that they're far enough along in the process that uh, somebody's working on conclusions to propose to the full board. Uh, but that'll generally go before a board meeting uh, where they'll have staff present them with uh, a, a wrap-up, a conclusion that uh, assigns a probable cause and any recommendations for the board to uh, discuss on its own, modify it at its will, and vote on. So there won't be a probable cause report would report without that process going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be back then, talk more about it when that time comes. But uh, I haven't had a chance to wade through any of this material yet. Quite frankly, I haven't even managed to open it yet. For Their system has been fighting me every time I try and go in there. Well, but, yeah, the system, I don't know what they're running. It's, I don't know, Visual Basic or something. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly, you know. So, uh, um, um, I, I got a couple of there's there's some very interesting charts and graphs in one of these files talking about the looking at at, at uh, causal factors in the initial role, in uh, um, one of the you know they're looking at wake turbulence from um, from preceding aircraft, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of interesting things and and some of these graphics are, are very very well done very uh, uh, very informative. Hmm. Um, so it's it's definitely worth the download, okay. um, at least you know from my perspective, given you know some of my day job work. Right, right. No, I, it sounds very interesting. I definitely want to dig it out. So we will, and we'll talk more about it when we have get certainly after the probable cause comes out. I think there may be some things to talk about. Well, in the meantime, it's something that anybody with uh, internet access can take a look at, and and kind of bring themselves up to speed with what it is that the NTSB has gathered. And uh, I think it'll impress a lot of people with just the depth of the information and the detail and the effort that went into creating uh, just the material in the docket, getting it all together and organized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. We'll take a look. 
Jeb, um, so you posted yeah. this story about how uh, federal yeah. cuts may delay next gen. We were joking around a little bit about next gen um, in the beginning here, but uh, right. Right. Um, what's this story? What are they talking about here? Well, we're talking macro politics here, and we're talking um, some big uh, high-level deal that was made between the president and, and congressional Republicans on the budget and on the deficit and on the uh, debt limit going back several months ago. And basically they, they decided to kick the can down the road um, to the period between the upcoming general election and January. So basically a lame duck session of Congress. And um, there's a bunch of, of kind of you know, built-in triggers involved here that if, the, if there's not a, some grand bargain on um, the overall budget and uh, uh, de- quote-unquote deficit reduction and, and all these kinds of things, that there will be what are called sequestrations uh, imposed on, on various segments of the federal budget. Basically across the board, um, some percentage of every agency's funding would be limited or, or, or reduced or eliminated. And I don't know what the, the correct analogy might be, but a sequestration is basically uh, a removal, a take back from an agency of some portion of their budget. And what this article, and there's, you know, pick a trade press, you're going to see a bunch of articles uh, about this relative to whatever federal agency it is that is involved with or regulates that industry. Uh, this is just the one that goes with the FAA industry. So, you know, there could be a bunch of automatic spending cuts effective uh, early January uh, if there's not some uh, legislation that changes that, uh, that schedule. Um, among those cuts are defense cuts, there's Social Security cuts, there's all, you know, all kinds of federal right. stuff that goes on here. Uh, FAA, being a federal agency, is caught up in all that. So what someone is saying is that, well, if, if you know, billions of dollars or something like that is cut out of the FAA's budget over a long period of time, next gen could be affected. Um, yeah, uh, it could be, but I don't think the system's going to work out quite like that. Cooler heads will prevail at some point. I, I'm not saying that, that the outcome will be better. Uh, it'll just be different. Um, so... Yeah. <laughs> I guess one one thing to keep in mind is, at least in my book, that you know the whole ADSB, it, all it really does is is try to autom- further automate what is presently a human function, um, and, and or at least reduce the dependency on on the human interaction with with airplanes in flight to uh, um, cut down human related costs. Salaries, benefits, retirement, all these kinds of things. You can go out and buy a computer for a hundred grand, uh, or let's say a hundred million, versus hiring a thousand people uh, and paying the benefits for you know twenty, thirty years, and, and and all this kind of thing. It's it's actuarially it's cheaper to to spend the money on the computers, and that's why I think you know a lot of this is coming down. It'll just get delayed if, in, if in fact that happens. It, it's it's gonna the automation will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So next gen might be delayed. Oh, what will we do? Might be delayed. But but let's let's you know, let's let's analyze what might be delayed here. Though uh, we've already seen where I mean, we already talked about how uh, a lot of the infrastructure parts of next gen uh, are already in place or will be in place. Um, in the very near future, um, it, it's really more a matter of 
when will the private sector uh, start equipping with it? And right now, um, you know, we've got a 2020 deadline. Well before that, under the current scheme, and, and you could say now, even now, a lot of this is complete and already in place and up and running. Um, at least the ADSB side of it, and there might be some additional processing that needs to be accomplished and, and maybe fine-tune a few things. But the basics are, are, are already there, just about to be finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay, that's interesting perspective. Um, the uh, and and I have to say that um, ADSB related products were a big, big deal at Oshkosh this year. Um, you know, there were yeah. all sorts of you know they may not have completely implemented ADSB, but they were all there. Um, David, you've always been the pro- big proponent of ADSB. What, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, uh, starting with the last thing you talked about the the the. A number of and variety of ADSB oriented products that were uh, unveiled at Oshkosh, particularly the stuff that works in the 978 frequency spectrum as a transceiver, so it gives you in and out in one box, and in a lot of cases had the GPS engine in it to give you the position data all in one box. That started the downward uh, turn on, on equipment prices that I expected to see, although might be happening a little earlier than than expected and certainly more than welcome. Uh, Jeb's right about the infrastructure being put in place. Uh, the big thing that's left undone is implementation, uh, rewriting procedures to take advantage of this and and developing some kind of plan for making the transition away from the old system and the old procedures to the new stuff because this isn't a changeover that just happens with the flip of a switch. Uh, so as they finish up the, what's not yet done on the infrastructure side, they've still got a bigger task on how they're going to transition to using this new technology for guidance and, and, and surveillance like they want to, but in a way that takes advantage of some of the benefits that it has in the ability to closer space aircraft uh, in the airspace. I mean, that's supposed to be the big benefit here. Right. It is so much more precise and so much faster, and so much more accurate overall, that it, they should be able to close up separation standards in a lot of environments and do that safely, integrate more arrivals into a common runway and in a way that still maintains some good separation, but gets everybody off this bun, burger, bun repetition, everybody going down the same pipeline or maybe merging from two different directions into one pipeline like we do now because radar's inherent uh, shortcomings. I mean, yeah. it's, J- it's Jane, good, you it's ignorant slut. Yeah, okay, Jeb, I was waiting for this. Go ahead, Jeb. <laughs> Jane, you ignorant slut. Um, I don't They're think a the- long way from that. I don't think the procedures are going to change that much. Um, we, we still have to put them together to keep them apart. And yeah. at least in the near term, and the near term in my book is 20, you know, 15, 20 years, we're not going to see any fundamental ADSB-based changes in, in air traffic procedures. Um, when I say procedures, I mean the, the manner and, and um, we might see a little bit of reduction in separation. But we're not going to. We're not probably not even going to see that until a lot more experience is under our belt. Um, we'll see changes in uh, arrivals and departures and and uh, other terminal procedures, instrument approaches. Well, we might see some interesting routings um, 
in very congested airspace like uh, transoceanic airspace. Um, I, I, you know, f- certainly for the average pilot and the average airline passenger, for that matter, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of of, of different uh, mm-hmm. uh, routings or procedures. Now, I'd like to return to a story we talked about last time, which is this whole question about how secure is the ADSB data stream, um, whether these things can be spoofed, um, and uh, and I have to tell you, they're doing a little bit more reading about it over the last whatever it's been week and a half or so. Uh, makes me more and more concerned about the security of this whole thing. Have Have you guys done any more? thinking or reading about it since I've then? Done, I've, I've read a couple of different takes, but basically from the same theme that, yeah, there's, there's this vulnerability. Um, and then I've read what the FAA has said in response uh, to questions about these, these newly exposed or, or newly discussed vulnerabilities. And what I'm hearing from the FAA doesn't give me a warm fuzzy. They're basically saying, trust us. Yeah. And, um, hmm, well, the yeah, problem is, no, it, I don't think I want to do that. Right it's now. not only a question of trusting the FAA about, you know, the, their, their, their design. You know, the whole system is actually based on trusting the, 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 the targets, the aviators that are out there. The aircraft, you know, I mean, it's basically the exact same system. It, you know, it's like for, you take out the electronics for a second and you've got a system where you've got air traffic controllers talking to pilots and periodically the air traffic controller will say to the pilot, OK, where are you now? All right. And then he'll write down that information and base all his decisions on that. All right. And and that works as long as it works. But if the if the pilot is is somehow mistaken about his location or chooses to to you know somehow uh, 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 you know present false information i mean it's just like the honor system big time and that, that just makes me a little nervous for a lot of different reasons here's my question yeah we're dealing with similar technology and same frequency spectrum by and large for adsb that we are with radar and transponders okay right yeah so what's to stop people from spoofing transponders and and borrowing the transponder code and suddenly putting an airplane uh, squawking that it's here at a different altitude when in reality it's someplace it, you know its original position we haven't seen that to, that I've ever heard of have we well i don't know Do i mean guys... in, in some sci-fi well here's here's one of the things the, the spoofing you're talking about is um these days, you know, people don't really. Well, here's the trick: to spoof the, the existing system, um, you have to have multiple transponders, okay, or or multiple transponders transmitting through, or one trans, trans, transponder transmitting through more than one uh, antenna, and those antennas have to be somewhat um, uh, displaced from each other. With ADSB, um, because it's it depends on uh, it's non-radar, for example. So, I mean, right right then, you're depending on the data, the quality of the data sent to it. Uh, it's very easy, much easier through software to um, generate a signal that says the the craft uh, um, transmitting that signal is in a different location. And you can do that. Also, you can multiply this by you know twenty, fifty times to say, oh, there are twenty, fifty more aircraft out here, and they are at a random, uh, in a random position, at a random speed, and a random heading. And you know who's going to, who on the ground is going to know what to do. There is, you know, there, 
they were talked about, well, we can triangulate to identify their position. Well, not if you only have one station for uh, uh, one receiving station uh, for one region uh, that's maybe in a fishbowl or something. Uh, no, you can't, you can't triangulate that way. You can use the computer to um, um, do some other things relative to maybe Doppler shift or something like that on the signal to, to determine which of those signals are real and which aren't. But uh, I'm not even sure Doppler shift is possible on some of that. There's, there's some other way to do that. But it, the the capability doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Right, how, right how about the discrete registration number that each one of these transmitters, yeah, ESB has, and, that, and that's and that's somewhat comforting to me, David. But my concern is that um, these these transmitters are are, are will be eventually um, widely available. Anybody can buy them, you know, in wherever it is you buy your gear. And then it's just a question of plugging it into a, a GPS source, which you could mess with. And so, you know, you, you, even if you don't the, even have to have a GPS source, you can just have a random, um, you know, restrict the randomness of it to, you know, say a 50 nautical mile radius pi r squared um, does the math for you. And that's how many transponder codes you generate to, to spoof the system. Um, plus, you can just generate the same same end number yeah. and it's still going to confuse the issue yeah so anyways well, there's a different there's a different registration number assigned to these things besides the the end number right no 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 I get that there's the ICAO uh, uh, 16 24 bit code I get right. that but that can be spoofed just as well as anything else can who, who cares so yeah, they'd have they, to they, decipher a 16 bit code yeah but it, I guess my point and is then, and then repeat it for one of these spoofs to take. But but I guess my concern is that you don't have to spoof the code. You don't have to invent a fake code. All you got to do no, is is go to, you know, whoever your avionics dealer is and buy another transmitter and you've got a, a legitimate code. Um, David, I know this is really you, you I you know, it's not my intent to personally me for me to 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 condemn ADSB, but uh, no, I know. Th- th- these are concerning things to me as a technologist and I just kind of I'm impressed with one thing though. The guys that got this whole thing started made their claims on the basis of spoofing this on a computer simulator. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you, and you think that, that strengthens their argument or weakens it? I think that weakens their argument. I mean, you can, you can program, if you can program to do this, can't you program the computer simulation to give you the results you want? Well, yeah, maybe. Anyways, we just need to keep an eye on this. We don't have an answer to this yet, but we need to keep an eye on this because it's, you know, it's the large part of next gen is dependent upon ADSB working reliably. And I worry, I worry more about GPS jamming than I do spoofing because. Well, there's another that, one. Yeah, that, well, that one. that's a known issue with demonstrated uh, uh, meat. Yeah, it's been done. The, the, our own government does it periodically, but it's been done. It's been demonstrated by uh, nice people and not so nice people, and not in simulations, but out where there are live targets, depending on it. Yeah. So, anyways, you, you know, here, here's my ICAO code. It's it's on the registration on the FAA website. It's five seven. Now that um, would be worrisome. Really? Okay. You and just went and found that online, Jeb. It's 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 on it's on the FA website. It's part of the registration data. Okay. So all you got to do is it's find labeled, some airplane. All you got to do is labeled mode S code yeah. on the on the on the website, but that's basically what the, the the data we're talking about. So all a bad guy has to do is find some airplane that's not currently in the sky and use their code. 
why why does he have to wait for something that's not flying? Why can't he use a current one? Oh, that's true. And that's, it really messes you know, things he, up. He can, yeah. be, he can do it either way. Yeah. So, anyways, we need to look into this more. <laughs> we need to find out who the guys who really understand this are, um, guys and gals. And uh, Maybe and, we should... You know, maybe we should maybe, you know, get them online and record the, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyways. Talk to somebody about this. We need to move along here. We're really, yeah. really starting to. <laughs> and, uh, um, let's see now. Uh, the Echo Clip of the Week. Uh, UCAP Echo is our new uh, web property where we have a, a browsable, searchable archive of all sorts of cool stuff from the uh, past six years of uncontrolled airspace as well as other uh, aviation media uh, uh, programs. Um, the Echo Clip of the Week is, uh, this goes back to uh, February 2007. Um, in an episode in uh, February 2007, we were talking a little bit about the uh, EAA ski plane fly-in that they hold at Pioneer Airport every winter. And that led us on to a conversation about all sorts of what we called funky fly-ins, uh, the sort of interesting little uh, uh, local fly-ins that happen all around the, the uh, country. And uh, in the, we talked, see which ones we talk about. We talked about the Alton Bay ice fly-in. We talked about Ponca City. We talked about uh, some commemorative Air Force stuff, uh, Bartlesville bi- biplane fly uh, expo. The Greenville seaplane fly-in and the uh, Yankee Flyers ultralight fly-in, wow. and uh, these are all little fly-ins, uh, interesting little fly-ins all around the country, and they obviously are just the tip of the iceberg. But uh, um, we talked about them in a, uh, a clip from uh, a Uncontrolled Airspace episode number fourteen back in uh, February of two thousand seven, and you can listen to that clip very easily by just going to UCAP Echo at uncontrolledairspace.com/echo and. Uh, and find the uh, funky fly-ins clip and uh, hear what we had to say back in 2007 about some interesting fly-ins that uh, that we knew about. And the other thing about Echo that I wanted to talk about this week real quickly is just to tell you that we now have a uh, – we're, we're now starting to publish a weekly uh, uh, UCAP Echo News email uh, where – we will be uh, talking each uh, probably Tuesday morning. Will be an email that goes out that talks about some of the uh, new uh, uh, content that's been added to Echo and some of the featured content and new features that have been added and and other you know bits and pieces of information about Echo. I encourage anybody who's interested in learning more about Echo to uh, okay. subscribe to that uh, net newsletter uh, by going to uncontrolledairspace.com/echo and you'll okay. see a, a section there where I can cut these all out. You know you you can just I can outlast you, all right? Um, we're uh, uh, <laughs> on the front page of the of the uh, UCAP Echo homepage and learn more, uh, or rather uh, enter your email address and uh, sign up for that uh, that weekly uh, email newsletter. Echo. Oh, let's see now. What do we got here? I got a couple more that I definitely want to talk about. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jeb, you did real good this year, about, this week, about putting stuff on the list. Um, a wired oh, piece you. about uh, FAA documents uh, that, that raise questions about the safety. So the FAA actually believes that drones were not, are not, will not be safe in the U.S. airspace. You know what this story is? Well, there's a 2007 letter um, from Raytheon. Uh, to the FAA, um, that if the engine quits, a backup battery kicks in, a pilot navigates to an immediate landing, if, and if video is available, he will use video to avoid obstructions on the ground. Um, if the digital link is lost, a landing is forced, or the aircraft is spiraled to the earth. Um, basically, he talks about how crashes of these, of these drones are, are fairly common. Congressional investigators tallied 200 drone accidents um, 
as opposed to combat losses uh, in four and a half years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, according to, again, congressional investigators, more than half of these were due to material issues such as component failures. Uh, and that's, you know, supposedly military-grade hardware mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Okay. Admittedly, it's in a harsh environment, and, and in all honesty, this article is not specific on distinguishing, you know, combat losses versus accidents. Right. So, uh, you know, some of these numbers might be, might be fungible. Um, it, but it's just, you know, another, another series of questions um, where, you know, here's... here's um, um, Someone at AOPA quote: By the time you avoid all of those, you know, trying to talking about creating restricted areas, um, or, or shall we say, special use airspace allocated to drones. So by the time you avoid all of those areas and try to thread the needle, you're limiting aircraft operations into a very narrow airspace, and you're also com- com- compressing traffic into a very narrow corridor. Uh, that reduces the margin of safety for many operators. That presumes that special airspace would be carved out for drone operations. I don't know that that's um, that's certainly one answer to the dilemma, and AOPA is certainly right to to point out the problems that that would create. Um, that I don't think that's what drone operators have in mind is operating yeah. in certain specific, uh, well known and well defined areas. But you know the. As I've tried to point out in the past, is that this is probably inevitable. It's a question, you know, and the reason that I say that now is that we got pointed to a news story from our good pal Charlie B., formerly of one aviation alphabet organization and now of another. And he called our attention to a story that talks about how this is one example, and I've seen multiple examples of this, where airports and different uh, communities are are seeing drone development as a way of building business in their area, um, becoming a center for drone activities or drone, drone development or manufacturer. Every, everything about this is gold rush mentality. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, you know, yeah. I, I don't think that can be overstated. Yeah. I mean, we've got all these records that congressional investigators dug up about crashes of drones here in the States and in the combat theaters uh, 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 in the Middle East. Uh, yet the, the people that employ those congressional investigators put in the uh, recently signed FAA authorization bill uh, a set of deadlines for the FAA to meet to fully integrate drones into the airspace as if none of these problems exist. And all of these problems exist. But there's lots of money in this. I mean, everybody and his brother starting drone companies. Airports are after the business. Uh, Two or three universities have added degree tracks Mm -hmm. in this, and not just building and and operating them and engineering them, but in uh, flight ops. And the Air Force has started a new career track for combat pilots that's remote for remotely piloted vehicles. I mean, Jesus, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah this one that yeah. Charlie called our attention to was a story from the ReadingEagle.com website uh, headlined, uh, Airport will be hosting course um, and expo on drones, a group promoting unmanned air vehicles to land at Reading Regional. Um, and uh, so this is a group that has the acronym of CUVR. I'm trying to figure out this acronym, by the way, because the the what it sta- what they say in the story it stands for is kind of an unfortunate choice of words, if you ask me. CUVR. It 
it's the cluster for unmanned vehicles and robotics. I'm not sure if I understand how they've chosen the word cluster here, but uh, not in the context it immediately leaps to mind. Yeah, I know. Huh? It just kind of like begs you to make fun of them somehow, some way. But uh, I don't know. Anyways, this is a, apparently a legitimate, uh, in, you know, budding industry organization that is uh, uh, presenting three-day courses on uh, how you know airports can can benefit from drone activity well you know there it, it, it it's just hard to overstate this but uh, we we haven't yet found enough ways to replace human beings and jobs to slow down now yeah so. <laughs> that's right yeah well you know part of the part of, you know we we're talking at the top of, the, of this episode about uh, trends in pilot retention and student starts and things like that um one thing that we haven't really talked about is what everyone says is going to be a pilot shortage uh, in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, some numbers are upwards of 50,000 pilots are going to be needed worldwide in the next 10 or 15, 20 years. Uh, same thing with maintenance technicians, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, um, maybe the number is actually larger than that. I think it actually is like more on the order of, of a quarter million uh, pilots are going to be needed worldwide and 50,000 in the U.S. or something like that. And it's a long-term thing. But we're, you know, remember about five years ago where the FAA changed the um, uh, rules associated with the first-class medical, or I'm sorry, with 121 operations, where um, there was an age 60 rule where there was mandatory retirement for the right. piloting command um, at age 60, and they changed that to 65. What a coinkening. That was about five years ago. Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, okay. Well, well anyways. Con- con- Congress saw fit to uh, alter the uh, uh, requirements for uh, first officer qualification, uh, uh, raised that from 250 to 1,500 hours total time. Uh, so that's, that, that's something that's having an effect now. Uh, and will ripple through the system for quite a while because uh, think about all those pilots that had 251 and 260 and 275 hours that were on the cusp of being hired as a first officer for a regional airline or to sit right seat in a charter operation, and suddenly they're not qualified. They got to go back to the drawing board and, and, and come up with another 1,200 plus hours to get the same job that they almost had today. Thank, thank, thanks, Congressman. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, we'll keep following it, but it's, it's an interesting story, the drone thing. Uh, one last item that I wanted to cover before we kind of uh, finish up here, at least, at least you may have some, a different idea, but um, uh, this story about uh, from, uh, I forget where I found this. I thought one of you guys sent it to me, but maybe not. Um, Aviation International News' website has a story uh, called Fly the Plate and You Won't Get Hurt. And oh, yeah. uh, it tells the story. Uh, David, is this the story that you were alluding to earlier when you made some reference to a uh, lateral approach? Um, I'm not LPV, sure. LPV, lateral precision yeah. with vertical guidance. Yep, this so, is. So let's see if I can summarize this real quickly. Um, um, the, so this aircraft, which I believe it's a, it was a biz jet of some sort. It was a Learjet. A Learjet 45 um, was flying the approach in IMC into Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, this was back in 2008. 
Um, he was flying the approach. Um, he believed at the time and later that he had the aircraft completely under control and, and perfectly on the approach. Um, they broke out of the uh, IMC. They thought that they were fine at first. They got the runway in sight. They suddenly at the last moment realized that they were about to settle into tr the tops of the trees. Um, they applied full power. They did in fact collide with the tops of the trees. They then decided when they were clear of the trees that it made more sense for them to complete the landing. So they did what they needed to do to get the airplane on the ground on the runway in front of them um, and uh, and uh, and you know damage the airplane but everybody was fine um, the pilot who is writing the story who is telling the story um, in this article um, says that he spent some sleepless nights for the you know after this trying to figure out whether he had made some sort of mistake whether or not he was flying the approach incorrectly and he came to believe that he was flying it correctly um, the uh, the uh, regulators tried to say that he wasn't flying it correctly, that he was low. Um, and he kept saying, no, I don't believe I was low. And he came to the conclusion that the trees were actually extending up into what was supposed to be the safe area. And the story goes into a lot of detail about um, him trying to convince the powers that be of this um, eventually successfully. And uh, the whole thing is like kind of scary, you know, that... Uh, um, and he he says now, and his research indicated that, in fact, there are all sorts of approaches around the country. This one, for example, years prior to his incident, people had been pointing out the fact that these trees had grown up into the safe area. They had, they were growing at like four or five feet a year, and over ten years had gotten too tall, and nobody had done anything about it. And uh, um, and he implies that this is that there, there's evidence that this is happening all over the country. What you guys experience? I'm not an instrument pilot, so this is, you know, not so. I, I, I don't even think this is an LPV approach. I think this is an old-fashioned GPS RNAV approach. Yeah, with uh, uh, yeah, this was altitude step downs. It's not an LPV, uh, and it was still based on a mistake in, in a survey that was never caught, never corrected, and starting with that error. And a, a projected tree growth rate of three feet a year for all the years between the survey and when this incident happened. Uh, yeah, no wonder they were poking way up onto the glide path for that. Mm -hmm. Jeb, you're the aviation safety guy. Is this, a, is this an issue? Is this a, a problem? It has been an issue at various airports around the country and, and uh, obviously here at Sarasota Springs. And I'm, I'm looking at that approach plate and, and I've shot approaches, practice approaches into that airport before. I have not shot this particular approach. Uh, I, the, the practice approaches I'd shot were, you know, 10 years ago and, and in, in VFR. So um, I understand, you know, how this can happen. Um, in some airports, it's a it's a problem. Sarasota Springs is not the only one. Yeah, we just had to take down a tree here at uh, at Hidden River. You know, that, that, so um, you know things as, as trees get older, they get taller. You're right. And, uh, they they do intend to encroach. Um, this is not a failure of the procedure design per se. The procedure as designed was safe. Um, and let me put it another way. The procedure as designed is always safe. The procedure as designed in this case um, was dependent upon um, obstructions being trimmed from the approach path, and that didn't happen. The, there's a part of me also that, that says, well, you know, wait a second here. If the tolerances on these approaches are so tight 
that a couple of, uh, say, 10 years of unchecked tree growth is going to cause a Lear 45 to damage its wing on approach, maybe the tolerances are a little bit too tight. Um, what are we talking, 20 feet, 30 feet, you know, over 10-year growth? I don't know. But if, if we're only talking that very short amount of distance, should we be that close? Should we be within 30 feet of the trees in the first place? Well, I don't know. I, I think the critical error on this uh, is not from the tree growth. I think it's from the error in the survey, which put it off a couple okay. of hundred feet to start. Okay. Then you add the tree growth. Uh, the tree growth by itself, it would have been closer, but still been about 150 feet below the glide slope. Maybe not comfortable for some folks, but still a miss. Uh, but the surveying error started them out too close, and then that was compounded by the tree growth and nobody noticing it until they got tall enough to snag a Lear 45. Well, my question is, what's the procedure for catching these kinds of mistakes? Um, I remember back in the early days when I was flying out of Palo Alto, um, from, on a pretty regular basis, you'd hear on frequency that there was, what did they call it, flight check? There was a flight check aircraft coming through the area. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if I ever actually had, got eyeballs on one of these aircraft, but I always had this image that they were like King Airs or something, and that they were mm-hmm. flying these approaches to double check that, you know, all the nav aids were doing their thing and all everything was hunky-dory though you know the way it was published um and i and it was only recently that it occurred to me that i haven't heard one of these things in a long time do they still do these kinds of flight check things oh yeah they do yeah Yeah. so so there is a procedure for routinely checking um these things to make sure that you know the nav aids are still working properly and that the you know the magnetic you know variation hasn't changed so much that it's screwing them up and things like that there's a procedure there's a process verify they have signal and you know, all of that. Yeah, they still do that. The FAA's had a long time had a king, uh, fl- excuse me, a fleet of uh, King Air 200s mm-hmm. to do exactly that. I don't know how many of them they have. I don't know how many they still have an operation. Uh, but they literally fly around all over the country. And the scheme was, you know, within a certain amount of years, a certain number of years, every approach, every procedure gets flight checked at least once. Mm-hmm. And. And I know, for example, on the VFR charts, all right, if there's something missing or something new in the in VFR environment, I, there's a, you, the charts all have a phone number or an email address or whatever on there that I can send this information in, and it goes into the hopper, and the next time they rev the chart, they consider whether or not to add this to the chart. Is there a similar user feedback procedure for IFR uh, stuff? Yeah, absolutely. There is. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you, if you if you were suspicious that the trees were too tall, you can call them and say, "Hey, you got to check this out." Yeah, okay. or, or if if you know a certain airport, the, you know facilities at an airport were, were different, or uh, um, you know there additional facilities have been added, or, or something like that. Um, that's something that you'd want to kind of you know phone into the mothership also. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, this is a fascinating story. I, I encourage people to uh, dig it out. It's from AINonline.com. Obviously, Jeff will put a, a link in the show notes. Um, and uh, my guess, though, is if you Google fly the plate and you won't get hurt, you'll probably find it. And uh, check it out. It's an oh, interesting it, it, story. Yeah, you do that. It, 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 this story got picked up by a whole lot of different outlets. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, circled around. And no, this was not an LPV approach. Yeah, okay. It yeah. Was, so, fascinating story. Well, 
yeah, the uh, the plate. Well, what 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 I what appears to be the plate involved is actually displayed here in the story, and it calls it an RNAV GPS. Um, but, anyways, okay. That's I, I think GPS I think the yeah I think what you're looking at is is uh, this occurred in 2008. That's um, more than four years ago right now. Um, since then, a lot of approaches, of which formerly were simply labeled GPS approach runway 5 or GPS runway 5, uh, have now been labeled RNAV uh, slash GPS um, as the, the LTPV nomenclature becomes uh, more prevalent. They're based on WAS, um, they provide guidance in, in two dimensions, not just the, the standard GPS dimension, standard uh, um, uh, lateral dimension uh, guidance uh, mm -hmm. provided on, on GPS. Okay. Um, so they've changed the name of these two. So it's evolved over the years. That's why you're looking at a different label on that approach. Program. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, right. and there's also, aside from LPV, there are uh, LNAV approaches, uh, GPS RNAV, and then there's a, another category that falls under RNP. Uh, but that's a subset, and it can all be very confusing. Yeah, I know, huh? Okay. Shoutouts. You got any shoutouts? Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead, David. Congratulations to Sandell Avionics and Flight Design for becoming the latest members of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. Now, Sandell... It's not a big surprise and kind of makes me wonder what took them so long. But flight design, which we know here predominantly for the CT line of light sport aircraft, is a longtime LAMA member. But they've got regular ESA certification of their CTLS in Europe. And they're working on their four-place C4, which should be making its first flight before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So uh, they've expanded their uh, interest in their manufacturing base. They decided to join Gamma, too. Uh, that's another little influence from the light sports side that I wouldn't have predicted six years ago. Mm. So Yeah, cool. Jeb, what do you got? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Uh, my shout-out, I guess, is a very informal shout-out, but just kind of my shout-out is to you guys and to our listeners and well, to yeah, all of the yeah, people yeah. who have supported us in this podcast, our friends at, at uh, Sun and Fun, our friends at uh, Air Venture, um, just, you know, every, everybody who's helped us with this podcast. Uh, 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 obviously, people like Jeff and, and Mike Morgan and Roy Searle and, and all these people. Dave who, Shoutbetter, yep. uh, uh, Mike Morgan. Um, yep, Far Farid Gio. Farid, uh, yeah, Farid. Uh, uh, Jim. Yeah. Uh, well, Rick Reynolds. Jim, Rick Reynolds. Yep. Uh, Dick Napinski. Jim G. Of course. Um, yep. Yep. Everybody at Sun and Fun. Um, and everybody you know, who ever downloaded list. this puppy. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's been cool. We're not done, but uh, but this is the uh, conclusion of uh, season one, and uh, um, you know we'll we'll let you guys figure out what the what the what the uh, cliffhanger is, but uh, but we'll we'll learn the resolution of that cliffhanger sometime. Da -da 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 tune in. Da -da -da. Tune in next tune in time. Next week, same yeah. bat channel, same bat time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And we'll be just as bats as ever. Yeah. So that's uh, one of those voices is Jeb Burnside uh, coming from uh, Hurricane Harried uh, uh, Hidden River, Florida. Uh, Jeb is a, a freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what's going on? You working on anything fun or, or can you just tell us where no, you can find on the net? Kind of like 
kind of the calm between the storms right now, so to speak. Um, yeah, work, you know, working on the airplane, working on the house. Um, 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 actually, um, put some proposed work aside so I could focus on some other stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, getting ready to get geared back up. So, uh, not, nothing really to report professionally uh, mm-hmm. over the last, or uh, well, since the last episode. But uh, uh, people can find me on the internet, jebburnside.com, um, aviationsafetymagazine.com, uh, aea.net, avweb.com. And, uh, you know, keep your, keep your blinds drawn. You never know who's going to be peeking through your window. Yeah. And next Boy, time. it gets around. That's right. And next time we talk, you can tell us how the hurricane turned out. Maybe that's the cliffhanger, huh? Hurricane bearing down. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. That's right. What Will he be washed uh, away? Will he wash maybe, away? Maybe, Will he take a shower? Will he step out of the shower? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, there you go. And that other voice out there is Dave Higdon. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine, uh, where we're wondering whether or not the 100-degree days will finally get to him. But uh, he seems to be hanging in there so far. But that's the other cliffhanger, right? What you been working on, David? What's going on? Uh, well, I'm working on some pre-NBAA convention stuff right now that, uh, that I can say will include a, a, an interview with somebody and some curtain raiser coverage for somebody else. And uh, it's getting that time of year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, avbuyer.com, AEA.net, uh, or... Have fun, shake the dice, do a Google search, and just remember I'm not the golf writer or the uh, theoretical physicist, at least theoretically. Oh, and I may have, I haven't seen it yet, but I contributed a little piece to my old magazine, Glider Rider, uh, now, yeah. now known as Ultralight Flying and Light Sport, and uh, they asked me to reminisce about the uh, uh, genesis of the Part 103 30 years ago when I was covering that for for the magazine, so... Mm-hmm. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, check out my Kindle ebooks uh, about aviation at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, also putting a lot of effort these days into getting UCAP Echo working and up and running and a lot of content added. Uh, check that out at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com slash echo. And uh, you can just generally learn about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, Jim Goldman, and to many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just $10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog. You can check out Echo. You can view the forums. You can check out the Aviation Movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you are going to say something you know if you flew for every an hour for every hour you listen to ucap right now you'd be over two weeks younger because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye-bye and that's enough talking let's go flying that was that was a good amffn Convention delegates will now hear the report from the Rules Committee. Please heed the following. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast 
are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. <laughs>